The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. introduce John chapter 3 by letting you know about a lunch conversation I had with a couple of my law partners that also teach Bible. Uh, we were having a discussion about if you had to say what is the most important thing you could teach your class, what would it be? And we got into this multi-hour long discussion of, you know, questions of the security of your salvation or our future or being a good spouse or being a good parent or uh, use of our spiritual gifts. We had a whole lot of different topics. I said, I got a radical idea, and I want you guys to discuss it with me. And we spent a long time discussing it, and it was a question of the importance of the topic, how to be a Christian without being religious. And at first they thought, yeah, good topic, but does it rate in the top three? And the more we talked about it, the more we kind of did a cultural diagnostic, the more they agreed with me, it's pretty important. The reason I launched that lunch discussion with my law partners was I'd been thinking about John chapter 3 because we're tackling that topic this morning. And I believe, based on my five decades as a Christian, that it is, if not the most important, one of the most important topics for all Christians to understand. The reason I say that is particularly in the Western world, in the U.S. in particular, the vast majority of people in church this morning are more religious than they are Christian. In fact, I would say the vast majority of them are extensively religious and are maybe even debatably not a Christian. And we're going to go through this morning through John chapter 3, some life lessons on that, some diagnostic issues on that. I'm going to make sure you understand my terminology so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But we're going to tackle the topic of how to be a Christian without being religious and most importantly, why that's important. Let's jump right into John chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, John, our writer, says there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Let me break that down for you. A man from the Pharisees most of you are very familiar with because you know that was the religious group in Israel today that Jesus wasn't real happy about. What you got to know about these guys is there are about 6,000 of them, and they were the extremely conservative fundamentalists of their day. They started after the Babylonian exile as people that were trying to retain the significance of the Hebrew Scriptures particularly the writings of Moses, the law of Moses. What they did, though, was over the centuries after the Babylonian exile is they became the epitome of religious. And so when I use that term, I don't mean spiritual. I don't mean good Jew. I mean they are religious in their actions. They created a lifestyle and a theology that was all about rule-keeping going here and not going there, doing this and not doing that. It became a matter of what we do as opposed to how you believe or why you do it or anything else. As an illustration, the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In Hebrew, it's four words. Remember Sabbath, keep holy. It's really short. They took four words in Hebrew 
And in the Mishnah, their commentary, their development of the law, they have 24 chapters on what those four words meant. For example, walking on the grass was work because you would bend the blade of the grass. Walking on a dirt path was not work. If you walked a certain number of feet, that was considered okay, but one more foot or one more step was improper. The things you could do in terms of what you could lift or not lift in your home, the things, uh, the people you could talk to, it was an insane amount of detail on the four Hebrew words about remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy. It was an illustration of the mindset, not only of the guy that's coming to talk to Jesus, but their culture today. And a lot of people in our world today, I would look at and say, they're still a Pharisee because of what they do and why they do it. Because for them, like for the Jews of Jesus' day in Nicodemus, it's all about an effort to make God happy. Everything they do is about making God happy. They think they struggle, they've got some problems, they've got some issues, they try to outweigh the scales by keeping God happy by doing more good things than bad things, by doing a whole bunch of good things because they did one really bad thing in the past. And it's all about trying to earn God's favor. If I go to church, if I tithe, if I help non-believers, if I help believers, if I do all these things, I'm making God happy, therefore they do those religious things. And that's the problem. His name is Nicodemus. It's a Greek name, and it basically means ruler of the people. And so there's kind of a play on words here. When John says there's a man from the Pharisees named ruler of the people, a ruler of the Jews. Now, we don't know if that's his title, which it could be, or maybe his parents wanted him to be a leader of the people, so they named him Nicodemus. But he had a Hebrew name, and we have no clue what his Hebrew name is. John uses his Greek name because apparently everybody in their culture used the Greek name and they called him Nicodemus. We just don't know if it's a birth name or a title. And he's the ruler of the Jews or a ruler of the Jews, which tells us biblically he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin developed in the same post-Babylonian exile period as the Pharisees, which was their ruling body of 70. Add the high priest, it's 71. And they were a group of uh, Pharisees and others who led Israel. They had the ability to be a legislative body and modify Jewish rules like can you step on the grass or do you have to step on a path? They could also debate religious issues. If somebody was accused of violating them, they had uh, their religious lawyers of the day. And then they would also pass judgment. They would have trials on religious matters, civil matters. The Romans would not let them kill people, but they could do anything short of death. They could throw people in jail. They could whip them. They could do all kinds of things in meting out their punishment. So as a ruling body, this guy Nicodemus is pretty significant. If you notice in verse 10, which I'm going to teach you in about 30 minutes, it also describes him as the teacher of Israel. A lot of times in Greek, the article is assumed, and it will just say, teacher of Israel. And we translate it into English, we add the article A because it makes contextual sense. Here in John chapter 3, they add the article. So when it says he's the teacher of Israel, it means at the time of Jesus, he was the most popular, the most respected, the most elevated teacher of all of their religious teachers of the day. Fast forward a couple of years, a guy named Gamaliel takes that role. He teaches the Apostle Paul, but at the time of Jesus, this teacher 
the regarded teacher of Israel is this guy Nicodemus. He then comes in the middle of the night and he says in verse two, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Let me break that down. He comes at night because of what I just said to you. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's the teacher. If you come under cover of night, no one knows you're coming so you can uh, avoid criticism by everybody that says, why are you hanging out with this guy or spending time with this guy who's not a Pharisee, who's not a member of the Sanhedrin, who hasn't come through one of our Hebrew schools. So it's an indication he's coming in secret because he didn't want anybody to see him. Now, life lesson here is because of the identity of overly religious people is often tied up in their acts of spirituality. They dislike, they're condemning, and they're ashamed of anything or anyone that questions their piety. So if you know somebody who's religious or in your world you encounter someone religious, whether that's Christian religious or anything else religious, if that's not the way you are, you frequently discover a shame, a disconnect, a dislike, a criticism. And so I can look at modern evangelical Christian churches today and say there are Pharisees in that church or there's Pharisees in our church because they are condemning of others that don't do what they do. They don't like others who don't do what they do. And it becomes a question of their identity. So I say this as a teaching point, as a life lesson, because if you're trying to work on those people, on teaching them some of the grace points that I'm going to teach you today, what you got to understand is it's an uphill battle because you're not challenging their, their, their religious beliefs or their theological framework. You're challenging their identity. If someone has a religious structure to life and it's all about rule keeping, that's their identity. If you attack that, you're attacking the construct of who they are. So you've got to understand this is something you've got to tread on with grace. You've got to tread on with a lot of prayer. You've got to be very careful. It is a long-term time commitment because if you go in just guns ablaze and preaching to them about, you know, religion is bad and grace is good, you are going to offend them, cut them off, and you've got massive issues. So I would encourage you to be sensitive when you're dealing with others that you might diagnose as being uh, very religious uh, in the sense that I'm using today because it can very quickly uh, explode in your face. Now, the rest of John chapter 2, he says very complimentary things. Rabbi, you've come from God. No one could do these things. What is he talking about? I taught you at the end of chapter 2, after the first cleansing of the temple. It says at the end of chapter 2, he went and did a whole bunch of other miracles, smaller miracles. We don't know what they were. And a whole bunch of people believed in him but Jesus would not give them a time of day because I told you last week he knew their hearts and he knew that they were motivated about the wrong thing. So with people being healed, with miracles being done, with people just being amazed and talking about Jesus, it generated a lot of the buzz. Nicodemus hears about this, probably talked to some of those people that said, I was lame and now I can walk. I was blind and now I can see. We don't know what the miracles were, but Nicodemus would have investigated, probably knew the people, realized something radical happened to them, so he goes and talks to Jesus at night. Now, you got to understand here that the flattery is a great little life lesson for us because the flattery gives us our life lesson that most religious people, 
are impressed with personal achievement and are prone to flattery because it reflects their values hierarchy. I'll tell you straight up, most people love other religious people. And the reason why most people love other religious people is because if they're religious, it gives them something in common. If they're not religious, the religious people, because their values hierarchy prioritizes personal achievement, are the most complimentary, the most flattering, the most kind people you will ever encounter. And so you encounter these people and they are so warm and so nice, it just warms your heart and you don't want to be critical of them and so you just love to spend time with them. That's dangerous. Jesus sees through that. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, I assure you, or some of your translations say, verily, verily, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you just read this in English, you got Nicodemus saying really, really complimentary things. And then Jesus' answer, the next verse is, I assure you, verily, verily, unless someone is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. As a lawyer, I'm inclined to look at that and go, objection, non-responsive, right? Nicodemus <laughs> says something nice, you'd expect Jesus to say something nice. If you're looking at it as a non-lawyer, you go, he didn't, he's, he's not, they're not communicating at the same level. They are because, remember what we've already seen in the wedding feast at Canaan. Remember, we already saw at the end of chapter 1 with how John, with how Jesus approached Nathaniel. With both Mary, with both Nathaniel, with the people at the end of chapter 2 that he sees when he's in Jerusalem after he clears out the temple, all three of those instances we saw the same thing. Jesus piercing through people's mind and hearts to understand what they're feeling and what they're thinking. He knew what Nathaniel was thinking before Nathaniel spoke. He knew what Mary was thinking before Mary spoke. He knew what the people were thinking as they followed him and praised him, and he pierced through all of them. He's doing the exact same thing with Nicodemus. He knows his mind. He knows his heart. He hears the flattery, and instead of answering the flattery, he answers the unspoken communication of his heart, which is, you're a man of God, how do I become a man of God? How do I understand God better? How do I get in better standing with God? What truths do I need to know of God? He's piercing the heart of Nicodemus and answering the unspoken question of how do I make myself more presentable to God? Jesus, when he focuses on that, gives us our life lesson that he answered the question of the heart, not the questions of his mouth. That's why as a life lesson for us, when we pray, it is not as much of a matter of what the words are that come out of our mouth. It's our heart that's praying for God. That's why the one word help is frequently the best prayer you can pray because you're not telling God how to be God. You're just saying help. That's why in the book of Romans, when it describes the prayer process, it says the Holy Spirit translates our words so God can understand what the words of our heart are. We see an audio visual of Jesus doing exactly what Paul teaches is how we pray and what goes on. God goes straight to the heart and answers the questions of the heart, not the question of the mouth. Jesus says, unless someone is born again, and that's how most English translations translate this. Our Greek word here has a double meaning. 
And the double meaning I see a great little uh, translation of in Young's literal translation where it says, if anyone is not born from above. If you do a survey of Greek literature, this particular word has two translations. One is from above, one is again, so it's totally appropriate to use both. But I show you the literal translation so you can kind of get an idea what he's talking about. Nicodemus fixates on the translation that's again. He translates on the fixation of a, a re-human birth, and it trips him up just like it tripped up the disciples. But Jesus here, when he uses this word, and when John uses this word, is one of two potential interpretations of from above or again. If you study the Gospel of John, this is not brand new. We already saw this in chapter 1. Back up and backing up a little bit, John chapter 1, verses 12 that great little prologue, when I taught you those eight things about who is Jesus Christ, it describes all who received him, who believe in his name, who he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So I underlined who were born of God. That was our introduction. When I covered it, I said, I'm going to come back to this in John 3. We're now there. And he's describing being born again. Now, the key thing for us to understand about this idea of born again for us is with being in church a long time, this is like ho-hum, Chris. This is the ABCs. This is elementary theology. I get it. I get born again, but I want everyone to clue in because there's a reason why Jesus is using this description. Remember, our theme is how to be a Christian and not religious. Our whole subject today is what is religion? I told you that's what we do to make God happy. The idea of being born again starts at the foundational truth of that. Spiritual birth is similar to physical birth and that the newborn is not able to bring about their own birth. In a physical sense, that makes perfect sense. If you apply it as Jesus is trying in a spiritual sense, then it gives us our truth that it's nothing to do with us. Just like none of you had nothing to do with your birth. It was 100% your parents, 0% you. The same thing with your spiritual rebirth. The thing going on with God, while it's hard to wrap our brain around, is 100% God, 0% man. That forms the basis then of our theological building blocks, our ideological building blocks that are going to allow us to construct this idea of what is religion and how are we supposed to deal with it. Now notice what he says. He says at the end of verse 3, it does not say unless someone is born again, he's going to hell. He could have, but he didn't. He didn't say unless he's born again, he doesn't get all the good things God intends for them, although he could have said that. Instead, he says he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when he describes the kingdom of God, it's more than just heaven. You cannot read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and come to any other conclusion that the kingdom of God is where God's in business. And he is in business in earth. He is clearly in business in heaven. So the kingdom of God has this duality this idea of the dual natures of God being in his creation and being in his heavenly abode, but it says he can't see the kingdom of God. His choice of the verb, I think, has tremendous life application for us because that idea of seeing the kingdom of God 
helps us with this understanding of religion and those who struggle with religion or spirituality, and it helps us understand them a little bit. Our life lesson here is because the lost cannot see the kingdom of God. They're incapable of seeing God's work in history, in others, or in their own lives. I can look at human history and I can say that was demonic. I can look at Nazi Germany between 1933 and 1945 and I can see the demonic all over it. Billions in the planet can study the history of Nazi Germany from 33 to 45 and just see bad people. They're incapable of seeing the demonic or the things opposite from God. In other people, I can look and see somebody filled by the Holy Spirit by how they talk and how they act. A non-believer can look at them and go, wow, they're a really nice person. They're incapable of seeing it. In their own lives, I could take the rest of the afternoon and tell you stories about God answering prayer from when I was a kid until yesterday and tell you all the ways God works in my life since I was conscious enough to appreciate God working in my life. Other people can say that and say, wow, you're not going to believe how lucky I was when I was 18. You're not going to believe how fortunate I was when I got that job at 28. You're not going to believe how lucky I was when I met that guy or that gal. Right? And it's for them all about fortuity. It's all about the circumstances of life. They're incapable of seeing God working, even if it's clear as day, God kept them alive, God gave them this opportunity, God met, had to meet this person, whatever it is, they're incapable of seeing it. So for you as a believer that can see the handiwork of God, it's incredibly encouraging. You want to share that with other people, and then you feel bad because they think you're crazy. They cannot see the handiwork of God. And Jesus explains why they can't see the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God is in history, it's in other people around you, it's in you, the lost cannot see it until the Holy Spirit works in them and gives them the ability to see. Imagine when you talk to people, they are severely blind people without glasses and you're not an optometrist, okay? You can talk to severely blind people without glasses, but if, they're, if you're not an optometrist, it frames the discussion, right? You can't say, wasn't that a pretty moon last night, or they think you're a jerk, right? There's a different way you got to talk to them if they can't see. So you've got to approach them in a way understanding they cannot see what you can see. John chapter 3, verses 4. Nicodemus doesn't understand. He's fixated on this word again, right? Born again, his brain goes straight to mom. He says, how can anyone be born when he's old? That is kind of referencing that he was probably old. Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? We can't be too hard on Nicodemus because the disciples made the same mistake. The disciples didn't get it either when Jesus said this. Remember, John's writing decades later. It took him a lifetime to wrap his brain around this. The disciples did not understand this and certainly weren't telling other people about this until after Jesus' resurrection ascension because the, the, the dots did not get connected. Great little cross-reference here that Paul gives us on this exact issue. is Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, what is more, I consider everything a loss. Because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom, for sake, I, for whose sake I've lost all things. 
I consider them, in other words, all that stuff he's done, that religious stuff in life, I consider it garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So what Jesus is saying in response to Nicodemus and what Nicodemus is reacting to is an idea saying, wait a minute, I can't go back into my mother's womb and be born again, which means I've got to work for God's favor. I got to do things to keep up with God's law. Paul says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Jesus here in a minute is going to say, that's not what I'm talking about. Our life lesson here is just like Nicodemus. Religious people are easily offended by anything that diminishes the value they place on their efforts to please God by their own actions. That's why when you talk to somebody that's heavily religious from the Christian faith or other Christian faith, you're walking on eggshells because your discussion of anything religious in their mind is going to be offensive if it doesn't fit into their worldview that they've got to do things to outweigh sin or to make God happy with them so that they can get God's blessing, get their ticket into heaven, or whatever their particular worldview is. We've got to approach them with a lot of prayer, with the idea your words are likely going to blow up in your face. Jesus, the Son of God, is teaching the leader of Israel. You would think what the perfect person to teach him to see the truth. Nicodemus can't get it. If Nicodemus can't get it, why do you hold out hope that you by yourself can do a darn thing? You can't. It's got to be the Holy Spirit working. Now, I'll jump ahead to the end because we're going to see Nicodemus two more times in the book of John, and I'll show you how his story ends. But for today's lesson, we're just focusing on this idea of religion. And if Jesus is going to get this kind of reaction, so are me and you. So we got to go into it saying this has got to be 100% the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they are not going to like the things I've got to say to them, so we've got to approach them real tenderly. Jesus then says in verse 5, in response to him saying, I don't get it. How does an old person get born again? Do you have to go back into your mother's womb? He repeats, verily, verily. Our translation is, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, i got to digress here for about 60 seconds. Because over the last century, there's three interpretations of this. I want to walk through them because your brain may go to one of those interpretations. Three interpretations. Number one, physical birth through embryonic fluid. This was in vogue in terms of mainstream Christian teaching back in the early part of the 20th century, mid-20th century. And the idea was when Jesus says you got to be born of water and spirit, he's saying everybody's got to be born a human and they got to be reborn a Christian. And that was the view for a very long time. The problem is anytime in scripture when it says water and spirit, that is not what it's talking about. It is clear as day. We want to make that interpretation because Nicodemus goes down the wrong path and starts talking about you know, being reborn by your mother. And we want to put the two together. That is not what he's talking about. Idea number two, in the latter part of the 20th century, a whole bunch of people said this is talking about baptism. When it says water and spirit, it means you got to be baptized and you got to have a change in your heart. And when those two things are combined, you're a Christian. The problem is the teaching on what it takes to get into heaven does not tie baptism to it. Baptism is a symbol of what this is talking about. 
Baptism is a picture for public display of what God has already done in your heart. See, for example, the thief on the cross who had no chance to be baptized and Jesus, knowing his heart, said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Wasn't baptized, you can't say with that example, baptism is required. So that's not a good example. What it is describing is a cleansing by the Spirit. What you've got to understand about all of our salvation is it's a two-step process. Our salvation is not God looking at us and waving the magic wand and saying, you're saved. It intentionally describes a two-step process, and I believe it describes a two-step process because of what we're struggling with. If I don't describe this two-step process, our brains and our bodies are locked into the idea of saying, I've got to be religious. Jesus starts fundamentally and says, you got to be born by water and the Spirit in order to be saved, in order to see the kingdom of God, and I'll give you some proof text of that. Cross-reference, Ezekiel 63, verses 24 through 27. Back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel is describing and recording the words of God about true salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with the law. In Ezekiel, it says, I'll take you from the nations. He's recording what God says and gather you from all over the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I'll put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart, excuse me, I will remove from you a heart of stone uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So what he's describing here is a two-step process in the Old Testament. Fast forward. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Titus with retrospect on, on Jesus, Ezekiel looking forward at Jesus, with Titus looking back, he says, he saved us, not because of the righteous, or I could say religious things we had done, but because of his mercy. And then he gives us the two-step process. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Understand through Ezekiel and Titus the two things he's describing. Number one, a spiritual bar of soap. Number two, spiritual growth hormones. Okay, those are the only two ways I can describe it in simplistic, you know, 2020 language. Number one, bar of soap. Your sins, past, present, and future, get scrubbed out, they are gone. We still have to deal with them. We got to deal with the consequences when it says a washing of rebirth. That means there is a rebirth of soul and that soul isn't stained by sin. Your flesh is stained by sin, but guess what gets left behind until we get a new heavenly body, the old body, the sinful body. When it describes the cleansing of the soul, it says we have a soul that isn't tainted by the penalty of sin. Now, our souls can clearly be tormented by sin, can be affected by sin. There's a whole bunch of things sin can interplay with us. But in terms of how God views our soul through the lens of Jesus Christ, 
it says there's been a washing of rebirth. And then renewal is what I described as spiritual growth hormone. That means what Paul later describes as us being childlike or being infants means we've got to grow, we've got to mature, we've got to progress from mother's milk to spiritual milk up to something more substantive. Paul uses all kinds of illustrations in multiple writings talking about this point. So there's a two-step process of the cleansing and rebirth of our souls and then the renewal taking us from infant to maturity and that's what's significant. Now, Jesus doesn't go into that great little deep concept. He just throws out the idea hoping the teacher of law remembers Ezekiel, remembers the other things in Jeremiah, remembers the other things in Isaiah. He doesn't, he can't get it. But Jesus says, or he says in verses uh, six and seven, Jesus says, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed, I told you that you must be born again. Verse seven is basically saying, I'm not saying anything new. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, teacher of the law, you know better. I'm not giving you new ideas. The idea of flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit is also another building block and idea of understanding religion. Because we've got to tackle the idea of how to deal with the old flesh and the new spirit. Because so many times religion and religious practice is trying to outweigh the scales of divine justice. We know we believers, or if you're dealing with other people, they think they're believers, they think they're in good standing with God, and they think going to church, tithing, helping non-believers, helping believers, doing all the things they do religiously, you know, saying their prayers, reading their books, is all about weighing God's scales of divine justice. You've got to get away from that idea. The illustration on the screen is, is incompatible with Titus 3.5. It's incompatible with John chapter 3. What's on the screen is what Nicodemus was struggling with. Nicodemus doesn't understand how to deal with the scales because in his mind they exist and he's got to do a whole bunch of good things to follow Old Testament law and keep up with uh, God's standards. Let me give you some teaching points on how to deal with old flesh and new spirit because we all struggle with sin. And we all struggle with guilt from old sin. And we all struggle with temptation for new sin. Because while we have this reborn, scrubbed by divine soap soul, we are still in bodies drawn like a magnet to sin. And we're drawn like a magnet to sin. We still struggle with how do I do with what I've done in the past? How do I do with what I did today? How do I do with what I'm afraid I'm going to do tomorrow? Three teaching points, all biblical. Don't be religious. The response to sin is not you doing more things. It's not an issue of you being religious. Number one, Christ has already achieved victory over your sin. That does not mean you have achieved victory over your sin. It means the person who is within you has achieved victory over that sin when he rose from the grave and went to heaven. So you better not fight that fight by yourself. You fight it with him who's in your heart. So if you say, I'm going to do by willpower, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to get my self-help group and I'm going to stop doing this. and I'm going to break that bad habit. I'm going to get with my counselor and I'm going to stop doing that bad behavior and stop being drawn to that like a magnet. All of those may be helpful, but they're not solutions. If Christ has achieved victory over your sin, if he's not helping you achieve victory over your sin, you've got zero chance of doing it. Cross-reference Romans 6.11. 
Number two, Peter teaches us, feed the new nature, starve the old. That does not mean I don't eat because my flesh is my body and I've got to eat and I've got to exercise. I've got to take care of myself. It means I feed the new nature, which is my motivation for daily quiet time. It's my motivation for constant prayer throughout my day. It's my motivation for uh, spending time in God's Word uh, when I'm struggling with something. If I'm tempted to do something, I'll go straight to my Bible. Starving the old means I don't bring it in where it's in front of me and tempting me. It's why I make the choices I make in terms of what's on my phone, what's on my computer, what are the movies that my family and I watch together. It's an issue of feeding the new nature, starving the old, cross-reference 1 Peter chapter 2. Third, walk in the Spirit. So I'm feeding the new nature, I'm starving the old. Walking means I'm taking one step at a time saying, God, through the Holy Spirit in my heart, help me with this conversation I'm about to have. God, through the Holy Spirit in my heart, help me with my spouse. God, with the Holy Spirit in my heart, help me with my kids or my grandkids. God, with the Holy Spirit in my heart, help me with this work struggle. Help me with this problem. Help me with this financial stress. Help me with this job stress. Whatever it is, it means as I take each step in life, I'm not taking it as Chris Martin, aren't I a great guy and a great lawyer? It means, nope, that's all worthless. As I take every step in life, it cannot be on my merits. It's got to be with the Holy Spirit guiding me, the Holy Spirit giving me feedback on my language, on my conduct, on my sensitivity to what other people are struggling with. And it means as I walk step by step, it's not me, it's God within me. Okay, three little teaching points on how to fight that issue of old flesh, new flesh. Back to our text. Verse 8, Jesus gives an illustration because at this point, Nicodemus' mind is blown. He's like, I don't get it. You're talking new birth, you're talking flesh to flesh, spirit to spirit. Yes, I know God's spirit. I don't understand how it works. I want to know the mechanics. I want to know what I can do, right? It circles back to that teaching point. The religious are highly offended when you tell them their acts of God don't work, so you've got to be real patient with them. Jesus is patient. He gives him an illustration. When he talks about the wind, there may have been trees rustling. There may have been a leaf blowing down the street there in Jerusalem where they were. We don't know, but there's probably an audio visual where Jesus sees the clothes blowing on the line or the leaf blowing or the trees blowing, and he points and he says, that's your illustration. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where it's going. You don't understand the mechanics of how it all works, but you see it and you believe it. Nicodemus would not deny the power of the wind, even though he was not a meteorologist. Even today in 2020, when we understand meteorology better, we can talk about high pressure and low pressure and cold and heat and how in the atmosphere that makes uh, the atmosphere flow faster or slower. We can understand a little bit more. It's still something you look outside and see the trees blowing. You don't really understand where is it hot, where is it cold, where is it high, where is it low. You and I still don't understand that. That's Jesus' point. It's okay to believe in that for which you only see the effects. Your ability to navigate life and wind doesn't mean you got to beat a meteorologist to step outside. You see the effects, 
you believe it and you go on with life. And Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus and to me and you, you don't have to understand this metaphysically, just watch the results. Look at your changed life, look at the change of life of other people who've experienced the second being born again a second time and see the results. You don't have to understand metaphysically what's going on. You don't have to understand spiritually what's going on. Verse 9, Nicodemus in response. How can this be? His mind is really blown at this time. He didn't even get the, the, the wind-blowing example. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? So Jesus at that point is basically saying, Buddy, this is in your Old Testament. Right? See, to the Jew, the Ruach, the Spirit, is wind. It's the same word in Hebrew. Jesus is saying, I just gave you an illustration describing the essence of God, which is wind. It's breath. It's the Spirit of God. It's the same word in Hebrew. And he's saying, you, teacher of Israel, I just gave you the easiest illustration I could give to anybody. He still doesn't get it. Verse 11, Jesus says, I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. Now, I think there's two things going on here. Number one, I think Jesus is being grammatically correct as to who he is and who God is. Just like in Genesis chapter one, when it describes creation with plural pronouns, it is our, it is we in Genesis chapter one. It's the same thing in John. When you describe the Godhead, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when they describe themselves, even though it's one God, it's with plural pronouns with a singular application, just like the word we. We is singular, but it describes a multitude. The second thing I think he's doing here is he's got John standing next to him nodding his head. Right, John is a true believer. John's known him since he was little. Remember the first lesson I told you their family, although a little bit distant. John believes, although John doesn't fully understand, and John's nodding his head. So Jesus is saying, I've got people that believe in me. Here's one of them. And we speak what we know and we testify to what we've seen. So Jesus is saying, this isn't just me. This is John. You may dislike me, but you got John here. Nobody can throw a stone at John because he's a pretty good guy. Great little life lesson here on what Jesus was trying to say. Christianity is not a system of pure faith. It's an understanding based on historically verifiable eyewitness transformations. Everything from Genesis through the book of Revelation is written by eyewitnesses to the communication from God eyewitnesses to the miracles of God, eyewitnesses to the workings of God who describe, despite their own sinful imperfections, what the Holy Spirit has told them to do. Yes, Christianity involves a degree of faith, but what it's about is historically verifiable eyewitness transformations. That is why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible because it talks about the 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ who Paul says, most of whom are still alive today, go talk to them. And no one would because they knew what they had to say. And it's historically verifiable eyewitness transformations. Verse 11, I assure you, we know what we speak, and then he says down at the bottom, but you do not accept our testimony. This is fascinating because his use of the word you is plural in the Greek. 
you can add a little note, a little dot, a little fleck of your pen, and change it from singular to the plural. When Jesus spoke, it was in the plural tense. When John wrote it, it's in the plural tense. So he's Nicodemus and everybody you represent, all the religious people of your community, all the religious people of the world, you don't accept our testimony. He's saying there's a whole bunch of people, Nicodemus, that are religious just like you are. And if you combine verses 11 and 12, you draw out, you do not accept, plural. You do not believe, plural. How will you believe, plural? Jesus hits three times. You don't accept, you don't believe. How are you going to believe? He's casting with a very broad net saying this religious issue is a problem. You've got to get past this idea of you earning God's favor. Life lesson, our residual sin nature drives us to be religious or spiritual and is greatly offended by any system of grace. The reason why Jesus said this is Nicodemus is now beside himself. He's offended. He's confused. He doesn't get it. Jesus now casting with a really broad net. This is Nicodemus and everybody that he represents. And you've got to understand the desire to be religious comes from your sin nature. That's pretty profound when you think about it because you think my desire to be religious or spiritual comes from my good side that's trying to earn God's favor. No, no, no. The desire to be religious is your sin nature saying, I recognize who I am. Liar, deceiver, greedy, self-centered, angry, you know, fill in the blank and all the negative things you could say about yourself. The same place that drives that sin says, that's bad. I better do things to outweigh that. Back to our scales of divine justice. Religion comes from our sin nature. So if you realize that, it should put into context your desire to do things to make yourself more presentable to God. Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, if I've told you things about that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Let me break that down. He says about ascending and descending, he's talking about himself coming down and basically saying men can't go up even though they may say they do. Life lesson here, humans cannot ascend into heaven to learn spiritual truths. Why? Because God's holy and we're sinful. So I am sorry about what any faith leader has ever said. They have no ability to go to heaven and hear a word from God. God can descend to earth to demonstrate spiritual truths. So Jesus is saying there's this issue of ascending or descending, and he focuses on himself as the descent, and he says the Son of Man. He's going to hit this 13 times in the book of John. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he comes to it again. Jesus called himself the Son of Man over and over and over again. Let me try to tell you what he was saying. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5, is one of the illustrations of in the Old Testament referring to a Son of Man. What you've got to understand about the use of the word man in Hebrew is it's the same word for Adam. So when you say son of man, you're saying a descendant of Adam or a son of Adam. What is significant about that is right after the fall, Genesis chapter 2 comes Genesis chapter 3, which is God dealing with the fall. And in the greatest verse in the book of Genesis, in my opinion, 315, the Proto-Evangelion, it says God's promise 
when he says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Satan and the woman, and between her descendants and your descendants, he says to Satan, and then it switches to he singular, he, a descendant of Adam, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, back when I taught you Genesis, if you're in this class a long, long, long time ago, I did a whole lesson on that verse, but it's significant because it identifies from 3.15 in Genesis that a son of Adam, a singular male descendant from Adam, is going to be the one that beats Satan. So that's why Jesus came back to this idea of son of man or son of, uh, of Adam was this idea that he's going to be the Messiah. Daniel chapter 7 tells us the son of man, the descendant of Adam, is going to be the one who is the Messiah. And in Daniel chapter 7, it describes looking at a vision, he beheld the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up the ancient of days and, we present, and, and was presented before him. Daniel in verse 7, I don't have time to go into it in great detail, describes using the same phraseology of the Messiah is going to be a man. He's going to be a son of Adam, a descendant of Adam. I told you in John chapter 1, he's a lot more than that, but that's what he is. So when John, when Jesus says in the end of verse 13, the one who descends from heaven is the son of man. He's referencing Psalms. He's referencing Daniel. He's basically saying to the teacher of Israel, I'm the son of man referred to. I'm the descendant of Adam referred to. Paul picks that up in his writings when he talks about the old Adam and the new Adam. When, when the writer of Hebrews talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. Same idea, this idea of the Son of Man. But then in verse 15, he gives us our conclusion and he says, if you really can't understand this, let me give you one more illustration from your Bible teacher of Israel. He says, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone believes in him will have eternal life. The reference to the snake on a stick is a reference to Numbers chapter 21. The children of Israel are walking through the desert. There's a whole bunch of poisonous snakes. They bit them and they died. People said, Moses, we're walking through a snake pit. We're getting bit. How do we fix this? They wanted God to kill the snakes or provide an anti-venom or to make a path like God did through the, through the Red Sea and divide the snakes so they could walk through them. God didn't do any of that. He tells Moses, make a bronze serpent and put it on a stick and make the people look at it, and their faith will be their salvation. It's an audio visual of Jesus Christ to a bunch of nomadic, uneducated desert wanderers to teach them an idea of salvation through faith that Moses could not have taught these uneducated slaves. To create a little windy snake on a stick, if you put it on the stick, it's just going to spin. To keep it from spinning, you put a crossbar, and so what the people looked at for their salvation was a cross that had an image of sin on it. So when Moses says, look at the cross with the image of your torment on it, and be saved. It's an audio visual from Numbers 1 that Jesus says, hey, teacher of Israel, you remember that? You looked at the cross and it didn't make any sense to you at all. But God said, believe in that which you can't wrap your brain around and you will be saved. That's why he gives the illustration 
that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now we can see it with our 2020 hindsight, see the cross and go, wow, that's mind blowing. Old Testament, Numbers 21, Jesus in John chapter 3, my mind is really blown. But he's trying to give an illustration just as Moses lifted up, that's what the Messiah is all about. You don't have to understand it. It's a question of the Spirit transforming what is in your dead soul to scrub it, give it new birth, and then regenerate it and grow it. So how do we give life application on this? Let me give you another Old Testament illustration in the last two minutes I got, and I know we're about to run out of time. But I want to tell you something that just blew my mind when I first learned this because it, it, it put the rubber to the road in this idea of religion. 2 Kings chapter 18. It's one of those passages if you're doing your quiet time in Kings, which is a really tough place to do your quiet time, you're going to skip through the first couple of verses because it's all history. In the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elihah, king of Israel, so that's king in the south, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, that's northern kingdom, began to reign. Twenty and five years old he was when he began to reign. He's a good guy. Verse 4, he removed the high places, that's the place of pagan worship. He broke the images. He cut down the groves and the break in the pieces and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto these days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. Understand what he's describing. What I just showed you, Numbers 21, the cross with a serpent on it. Look to it, Moses said, and you'll be saved. They saved it as an icon for religious worship for 700 years. David didn't destroy it. Solomon didn't destroy it. All the good kings of Israel didn't destroy it. The good kings of Judah didn't destroy it. Hezekiah shows up and he said, this is religious. We've got to be people of the Spirit. And it refers to him in glowing terms for the rest of this chapter because he's a man that understands the difference between being a believer in Yahweh and being someone who's religious. So, how do you be a Christian without being religious? Let me give you a couple of points to end. It's not what we do, it's why we do it. You do not come to church or Bible study for a check the box to make God happy. You come to be changed. You don't tithe to make God happy. You do it to change the way you look at finances. You don't pray to tell God what you do. You pray so God changes you to deal with it. You don't help other people to make God happy that you're helping other people. You do it so he changes you dealing with other broken, hurtful, desperate for you people. Religion says, God, notice me. True Christianity says, God, change me. That's why we go to church. That's why we pray. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we help non-believers. That's why we help believers. That's why we do everything we do. So if you have come to class as someone who has been religious, I hope today ends that for you. And I hope today, even if your moment with God in the past was a genuine, true conversion, second birth, I hope from this point forward, your view of everything you do for God is about changing you, not noticing you. Can you do that for me? Preach! All right, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this lesson.
Thank you so much for gently teaching us. Thanks so much for gently guiding us. Thank you so much for the patience that you show us, that you showed Nicodemus. And thank you for making us people after your heart, after your soul, after your word, after your desire for righteousness. Our sinful nature pulls us back, but our transformed soul that we want to feed through your word, through your prayers, drive us forward. Help us this week to be people that are more focused on you and more focused on change that you want in our lives and no longer people of religious acts and practices for your glory, for your good, for your will and for your pleasure. We ask all these things through your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, the greatest paragraph in human history, John chapter 316 and beyond. I'll see you next week. Thank y'all. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.